So we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter one and parts of chapter two. It took me about four minutes and 30 seconds to read it last night. So do not start my clock until I finish reading this long section. All right. This is God's word. And, and Paul reminds us to devote ourselves to the public reading of scripture. Our book of church order says that the power of God is more on display in the reading of scripture. So just reading it alone, if we were to take our seats after reading it and allowing the Holy Spirit to do its work, God would have served us well. But he gives us the privilege to unpack it, and so we will this morning. Exodus chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll finish up at verse uh, 10. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if a war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from this land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built four Pharaoh's storehouses, uh, store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more the people of Israel were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with pitamen and bitch pitch and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him now the daughter of pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river she saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it when she opened it she saw the child and behold the baby was crying and she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman who is the mother of the child took the child and she nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, your word is rich and textured and good. And we pray that you would make it so uh, right now. Father, we pray that you will enable us to hear and to understand the beauties from your law. Father, we, uh, it's so easy to run interpretation of scripture through uh, our own lens. And we pray for you, Holy Spirit, to make us humble up upon your word and, and to attend to it with humility, uh, but also, Lord, reverence and awe and worship and obedience. Build us up, Lord, and teach us how to endure suffering and sorrow well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, uh, after, at the end of this service, we're going to sing one of my uh, favorite hymns, and it's a, a, a popular Advent hymn. In fact, it's so popular that if you were to go and get a, a Methodist church hymnal, an African-American hymnal, the African-American Baptist hymnal, and the Trinity hymnal, that you'll find this song in all of them. And that's important because the song that we're going to sing, it, it really does transcend culture and theological traditions and ethnicity. And it's the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And I think the reason it transcends all cultures is because at its core, we all know what it's like to wait in sorrow. Think about the words, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Emmanuel is the name assigned to Jesus in Isaiah 7, where the Lord says, I will give you a sign. A virgin will conceive, and you shall call him Emmanuel, for he will, God will be with us. But this song is crying out for God to be with us. And notice it speaks of, 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 of ransom captive Israel. And notice what they're doing in the song. They're mourning in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And the Son of God is Emmanuel. And so you might say that, that, the, that these saints in this passage will be singing this song because they are in exile. They're mourning and they're looking forward to the arrival of a son. And so as we think about Christmas, it's appropriate to think about sorrow and sadness. Ironically, we don't often associate Christmas with sorrow. Just think about the Christmas songs that you'll hear uh, in the mall while you shop. It's the hap happiest time of the year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. But in fact, for a lot of us, it's not. That loved ones are not at our tables who were there last year. That some of us, we overspend around Christmas time. And we put up a front to our children like we have it all together. And we're worried if ends will be met in February. 
Christmas does not make your marriage better. Christmas does not bring that wayward child back. Christmas does not stop bad reports from doctors. In other words, that, that if we're honest, like Christmas does move many of us to sorrow. And I think that's, that, that's right that we feel that way. Tish Harrison Warren, in her book, Advent, she writes, let's put away with the funnel graph and the fake tinsel. Let's learn to lean into the ache of the world, the sorrow and the struggle of all creation. And we're tempted, right, to skip over the devastation of Good Friday for resurrection on Easter. But she goes on to say that, that we treat Advent the same way, that what we want to do is skip over the period leading up to the arrival or the second coming of Jesus. And we don't want to understand that the reason we need Christmas to, is to displace the sorrow. And so and, and she goes on to say that, hey, to the degree that we minimize our need for the cross, we minimize the beauty of the resurrection. And, and Christmas is the same way. If you minimize, right, the suffering and sorrow of which Jesus steps into, then you'll minimize the gravity of his coming. And so let us remember that Christmas, the incarnation, the second coming of Jesus, that path to it is paved with sorrow and he will displace it. And that's what I want us to think about this, this morning is Advent, that, that we're learning to wait in sorrow. And there's no better teacher than the people of Israel here in our text this morning. And they're going to teach us. They're going to teach us what it means to wait and wait when the sadnesses pile up and things seem dire. And my prayer is that as we wait with hope and in sorrow, that Jesus's incarnation and his future return becomes that much more beautiful. And so the first thing I want us to think about this morning is, is sorrow as we wait. Now, look, when you look at this text, there is a introductory in, introduction to the whole text that I would say the meat of the text is chapter one, verse eight through chapter two, verse 10, but we can't really ignore what's happening in verse one through seven. There are questions like, who are these names? Why are we given Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Dan and Naphtali? Like, who are they? And, and why are they in Egypt? Like right? Egypt's mentioned over and over again. And then why in verse seven are, 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 is all of this language used to talk about them having a lot of babies, right? They were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Like, like what is all that about? Well, you have to think about Exodus as being part two to Genesis, which is part one. And things are happening in Genesis that help us understand where Exodus picks up. Right. So who is Jacob and and who are these sons? Well, if you read Genesis, you know that Jacob is Abraham's grandson. 
And if you read Genesis, you know that Jacob had two wives and, and they had servants. And between their, their, their family unit, they, they birthed 12 sons and a daughter. And those 12 sons would then become the nation of Israel. And so how did they get in Egypt? Why is Egypt at the forefront here? Well, you know, if the way that Genesis ends, there was a famine in all the land where Jacob and his sons dwelled. There was one place that had land, I mean, had bread, and that place was Egypt. And so Jacob sent his sons to Egypt to get food because they were about to die. Well, something happened in Egypt. The brothers got reacquainted with their other brother that they hated, that they put in a pit and left for dead. Well, Joseph ended up being rescued and being bought and being sent to Egypt. And he really did start from the bottom and he rose to the top. He was the second in command under Pharaoh in Egypt. And so, so Joseph was this dreamer. He had these dreams and he could interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh had this dream that he could not figure out. And he says, hey, we remember this guy that was in prison. He can interpret your dream. And then Joseph is summoned from prison to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And he told him, you, you, what you're seeing in your dream is a famine that's coming. And what you ought to do right now until the famine gets here is build these storehouses and, and store up grain so that when the lean years come, you will have an abundance. And so that's what Joseph was doing. Now, you, you got to see this because when these brothers went to go get grain, all they saw was famine. They had no idea in the world that what God was doing over here in their ignorance and in their they couldn't see it all was working up a plan to save them. And they thought that Joseph was going to get revenge. And he says, well, you intended for evil. God intended for good. He raised me up to save you. So that's why they're in Egypt, because that Pharaoh was pleased with Joseph. He says, look, tell your whole crew to come stay here. And that's why the text says 70 of them went. Now, why the emphasis on them being fruitful and multiplying? That too comes from Genesis. What did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it. What did God promise Abraham? I will make you the father of many nations. Your descendants will be like the sand on the sea, the, the, the stars in the heaven. Kings will come from you. I will be your God. You will be my people, right? I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and I will give you your own land. And so when you read this book, 400 and something years have passed. And guess what? They're fruitful now. Matter of fact, Exodus chapter 12 says 600,000 men form Israel. So they're living in the middle. God made these promises. I'm going to make you a nation. Kings will come from you. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be fruitful. I'm going to give you land. And when you pick up an Exodus, some of those promises have been fulfilled. Are they numerous? Of course they're numerous. Right? Are they a nation? Of course they're a nation. Do they have a king? Not yet. Are they in their own land? Not yet. Now you understand why I had Zach read Exodus chapter 2, 23. During those days, the king of Egypt died 
And I think it's pointing to the king that treated them favorably. And the people of Israel were groaning under their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue came up to God. And so the question that we have to ask of what's in front of it is, why are they groaning? Why are they sorrowful? Why are they crying out? And then this fills it in. They're crying out and sorrowful because a new king is there. Not the king that treated them favorably. Not the king that says, hey, y'all come live with us. Not the king who made space for them. There's a new king in town. And this new king is a terrorist. He's driven by fear. He says they've become too numerous that if war breaks out, then what they're going to do, 600,000 strong of them, or however, however many it was, what they're going to do is fight with our enemies. And it's enough of them and our enemies to overthrow us. He says, here's what we'll do. We will break their backs down. We'll make them slaves. And they will build for me cities, storehouses, Ramses, right? All these cities they'll build. And in a, in a in beautiful irony, when Exodus ends, guess what? Israel ain't building Pharaoh's city. Exodus ends with them building a tabernacle for the Lord, right? And Pharaoh is oppressive. And so he, he beats them down with labor. And then the people of Egypt all hate them. They're, they're everywhere, right? And then Pharaoh actually thinks that if we break their backs with servitude, it'll drive a wedge between them and their marriages. And they will not want kids. They will not want to bring kids in this world. Their bodies will be too broken to be thinking about connecting with their spouses. And the opposite thing happens. <laughs> it says he oppressed them. And they had more children that he oppressed them and they kept having babies. And then he hated that. And so he went to these two midwives and, and, and one scholar says, look, if they're having these kind of babies, two midwives were not the only ones responsible for birthing all those babies. That what we think that is happening here is that he went to the two women who were over all the midwives and says, hey, when you start to go deliver babies, you legislate this to all the other midwives. If a boy is born, you kill him. And if a girl is born, you let her live. Now, why would he do that? He would do that because boys go to war. Boys become warriors. And so what he's trying to do is to rid himself of any inkling that they can rebel. And what happens? He says, hey, man, them Hebrew women ain't built like everybody else. We show up. They didn't already have the kids. They don't even need us. And so then he gets mad. And then he says, look, not just you midwives, any Egyptian. If any Egyptian sees any Hebrew boy, you have my permission to throw him into the Nile. Right? Now you understand why they're groaning. They're groaning because mothers are watching their sons be snatched away. Fathers are losing male heirs. Little girls grow up hearing about the brother they never got to meet. And Exodus does not tell us the scope of this act. But here's what we do know when you read the rest of Exodus. 
They were commanded to throw little boys in the Nile. God says, I'm going to turn your Nile into blood. You're going to drown them in the water. When you chase my people out of the promised land, I'm letting them walk on dry ground and I'm drowning you. When I do this last plague, I'm coming for your sons. That it feels like what they dish out to God's people. God says, vengeance is mine and I'm giving it back to you. And that's fulfilling what God told Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. And those who curse you, they got to answer to me. Now, what's the problem? Why are they sorrowful? Because they're not in their own land. And they don't have their own king who rules in kindness and grace and equity and justice. And their hearts are breaking. You know, saints, the Bible uses similar language to describe you and I. First Peter one, we're called elect exiles, which means that we're favored, but we're not home yet. First Peter two 11, we're called sojourners. Hebrews chapter 11 says we're a people who desire a better country, the heavenly one. Revelation 21 says we look forward to the holy city, the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven. And saints, until that new city comes down, until Jesus makes all things new, we live on this earth and in this state. And America, though good, is not the great country God has in store for his people. This earth, though teeming with beauty, is not the great new world God has in store for his people. And since we live here in this place, we like them are subject to dark powers and forces of evil and hardship that harm us, our families, our neighbors and our friends. Because we're not home yet, saints, we all carry what I'd like to call macro and micro sorrows. Macro meaning big. We have miscarriages. We birth children that we have to bury. We can't conceive. Our children have their lives taken away. Our world is littered with oppression and slavery and sex trafficking. Architects have to design schools now so that they can isolate active shooters who show up with AR style weapons who in three minutes can obliterate 200 families. We see images of women and children dismembered in war. We read about coral reefs dying and animals becoming extinct. We watch the heartache of Alzheimer's and it robs loved ones of memory and life. We read about teens who die in car accidents. We hear about murder in our music and we see it on the streets. 
and we have micro sorrows, we get bad reports from the doctor. And you get word, like I did this week, that a childhood friend has a cancer that can't be cured. And he's dying. And we're sad because we can do nothing. And we have children who walk away from the faith and aren't that interested in the things of the Lord. And we have disagreements with our spouses and we can't even remember what we're arguing about. And our cars break down and they cost us money. And we have car accidents and have to deal with insurance. I'm just telling you guys that we carry these things. Take seven seconds. What has caused you sadness this year? You laid a husband to rest. What's caused you sadness this month, this week, this morning? You see, I think what God would have us to do is to, to write that down and to name that. And to grieve that and to lean into it. Because when we lean into it, we begin to feel what they felt. I'm not home yet. And I know I'm not home yet because this is evidence that I'm not home yet. But they teach us more. They teach us more than th that, that we will be sorrowful they also teach us what we can do. We may not be able to change Pharaoh's heart. We can't go back and, and undo destruction. But did you notice what they do? It says that they, they groaned because of their slavery and they cried out to God for their help. And that's interesting that they didn't just groan, right? They didn't just grieve it and, and, and shed tears and, and feel the weight of the sorrow. They also did something with it. They, they, they sent this upward to the God who does not have human eyes, but he sees. He doesn't have human ears, but he hears. They, they take these sorrows to God. And that, that, that's a reminder that it's so easy to do the one and not the other. It's easy to hold our sorrow and to put on our poker faces like nothing is wrong. And they don't do that. They ache. And it's easy to just keep it on our own and just talk to our friend girls or friend guys, right? But notice what they're doing. They're, they're actually saying, no, I have a place to take this. I can actually take these sorrows to the God above who hears me, who knows me, who loves me, who sees me, who is for me. And then guess what happens? The God who sees, the God who hears, he does something about the sorrow. And I would say that he does it in two phases, right? Stage one he gives them support in the sorrow. The next thing he's going to do is completely deliver them from it. And so let me show you the support 
God gives them in the midst of sorrow. Here's the second point. God supports us right now in our sorrow through God-fearing, faithfully present, ordinary, and sometimes unexpected people. That's a long point. I'm going to say it one more time. God supports us in our sorrow right now through God-fearing, faithfully present, ordinary, and sometimes unexpected people. Now, I think that they're crying out. You begin to see, okay, God, did you truly hear? Yes, they cried out. I was hearing them, and here is evidence in my activity, right? And that's, I think, how we have to read the section before chapter 2, verse 23. So you'll notice these midwives in our text. Can you imagine being commanded by Pharaoh to kill boys and that being popular? And then if can you imagine being a mother and you know the midwives coming to serve you have been charged to to murder your son? Can you imagine the anxiety that's in your heart now? This was before the sonogram, right? So, so they didn't know the sex of a child until the child was born. And can you imagine being a mother? I don't want to get too attached because he, they may come and kill my child. And all of a sudden you get the knock on the door and it's a midwife. What's going through your heart then? And did you notice what these midwives did? We're not killing them. We're not going to do it. Why did they not do it? Because they feared God. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. The Bible is going to say, honor the authority, honor the law of the land. But God's going to write his own law in Exodus chapter 20. My law says you shall not murder. My law says you shall love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. My law says fear not the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and cast our soul into hell. That's who you fear. And what you see is this dilemma. These women are in a dilemma. If we disobey Pharaoh, he throws us into the Nile. And what do they do? They resist this unjust law. Why? The text says over and over again. Look at it. Verse 21. The midwives feared God. Verse 17. The midwives feared God and did not do as the king commanded them, but they let the male children live. It's the fear of God that shows up here. The second thing you see about this is they were faithful where God had them planted. These midwives didn't go and do something super. They were trained to be midwives. Their task was serving the women in Goshen. They got up, they clocked in, they walked house to house in Israel, did their jobs, and they went home. In other words, they weren't one way here. I will fear God when I'm with the saints and in church. But when I go about my work, I do it however I want to. No, these women fear God and the fear of God makes them consistent wherever they go. They just show up, save babies and go home. And this is important for us to hear. 
as we see sorrow and suffering in the world and our cultural moment is so tempting to think that God is calling us to go start a movement and to go and do big things in the world to alleviate suffering. And what you see them doing here, they're just kind of local people. I'm trusting you, God. You're going to put people who suffer in my path. And because I fear you, I'm just going to do what you say, right? It's very local and, and earthy here. And they resist the other temptation that, 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 you know what, God? Little old me, I really can't play a role in your kingdom. You got to have a PhD on that name. You got to be an elder. You got to be a pastor. And it's like, no, like God uses like ordinary people in his kingdom who fear him and who love neighbor. And this means, saints, that God is really calling us to be local people. As you belong to this body, as you live in this city, as you go about work in your office, as you walk your dog in your neighborhood, God is saying, be faithful where I got you. I'm not putting a crushing burden on you to go fix everything. Be faithful where you are. Which moves us to the second point. That, that, that sometimes God is pleased to use ordinary and unexpected people. Like, so the, the way this Exodus is written, saints, you'll notice that, that Pharaoh is not named. Right? It's not named. And that's intentional. He's the most powerful person on the planet when this was written, his name is known. And this is what this is what crushes scholars because we try to date Exodus and it would help us. God, all you got to do is tell us which Pharaoh it was. And then we, we can know all of this is no mystery anymore. But you notice he's never named. He's just the king, the king, the Pharaoh. Well, which one? That ain't even important. It don't matter. But did you notice who does get named? whose names are revealed in this passage? Those midwives. What are their names? It's right there in verse 15. Shipra and the other Pua. It, it, it's kind of strange. It's almost like the writer of Exodus is writing out the important people and he's writing in the people that you and I might, be, might tend to overlook. No, you're going to remember their names. In fact, it's not just this section. What God is doing in this whole chapter is I think this is kind of the girl power section of Exodus. That he's putting forth what women are doing. Now, read it slowly. A man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. But notice what it says in verse two. It says nothing about the man and the woman conceived. It says the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, the word for fine is good. The same thing that you get good in the first opening chapters of Genesis. And she hid him for three months when she could hide him no longer. She took for him a basket made of bulrushes. She put the child in it and placed it in the reeds by the bank. And his sister, this is Moses' sister, who Hebrew scholars will say that she's maybe around six years old. So another person you would think. What a little six-year-old finna be doing in all of this. She all in the mix. 
She stood at a distance to know what would be done to her little brother. Now the daughter, again, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside her. And she saw the basket among the reeds and she sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and the baby was crying and she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child? And she's slick because who she really go get is her mama. And she bring her mama back and her mama gets to nurse her own little brother. And then her mother nurses Moses and gives him back to Pharaoh's daughter. And she raises him as her son. In fact, she is the one who names Moses. Now, why? Why is why is the author of Exodus thrusting women at the forefront of this passage? The same way that he begins this section by naming the men, these are the sons, and it ends with this is Moses' name. He's going to be the deliverer. But make no mistake about it. Redemption and the alleviation of suffering is not just something men do in this text. Men and women working together with different contributions, but we're working towards the same goal of showing and showcasing the love of God in Christ. That what Genesis promises, Adam and Eve, you rule together, you multiply together, you fill the earth together. You have dominion together. You see it happening in Exodus chapter 2. Man and woman together. Being an answer to their prayers. For the here and now. For the alleviation of suffering. In this world. And this is important for us to hear saints. Sometimes we pray for relief. For support for help and sorrow. And God answers by sending people into our lives who first and foremost fear him. We don't fear what people think, right? We fear God and our consciences are clear before God and we help in sorrow. We're faithful where we go. We're okay with not being famous. We're okay, right? with just being faithfully present. And this is why Advent is the perfect time of year. If there are widows in our congregation who are suffering, we go visit. If there are those who are walking through immense tragedy, we show up. It's enough to walk through life with these sorrows. And what you see is the saints of the Lord showing up. And so uh, I recently had the privilege of doing a pastoral visit. For someone whose life is drastically changed. And I got there and I brought my book that. And I'm just saying, I'm going to do the liturgy that I'm going to do with my kids tonight. I'm going to do it with this person in the hospital. And I get there and the reading is Psalm 16. 
where David says the saints in the land are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And up there in the hospital reading this to this brother. And he talks about how many of you have shown up and have been present. And you're making this new challenge bearable because you're near. And y'all be me to him. You know, saints, this is what God is calling us to, which moves us to the last point. Is God's ultimate purpose to support us in sorrow or does he want to completely eradicate it? Is he about making it bearable or is he on a mission to obliterate all groaning? He's on a mission, saint, to create a world where you won't be able to groan, where you won't ever feel sorrow again. You're going to have to look it up in a dictionary to be reminded what that was. And guess what? He's going to do it through a son. A greater son is coming, has come, who will deliver you from all sorrow. That's our last point. Now, remember, you can't fully grasp Exodus without Genesis. Genesis begins when God made the world good and everything was good. Nothing was evil. And Adam and Eve ate of the tree that God told them not to. And when they ate, the Bible says we, he, is our, they, he is our federal head. So as Adam failed, we all failed in him. And so now we die. Now our children fight. Now we have an expiration date on this life we live right now in the flesh. Now evil is in the world. Now hardship enters the world. And God made a promise to Adam and Eve. But Eve, one day you're going to have a son. And that son will crush the head of a serpent. And that son will be bruised. But this son will bring about this new world that I'm preparing and then you see, right, our passage this morning, this emphasis is on a son, a son, a child, a son. And we don't get his name until the end when he's named Moses because she drew him out of the water. And you see that, that God is advancing that plan. This son is good. This son is the offspring of the priestly family. This son was put in a basket made of the same material as Noah's ark. This son's life was in danger, but he was protected. This son spent his childhood in Egypt. This son name is Moses, which means to draw out of water. And this son has this mysterious language around his birth, right? It says that the woman conceived the normal way in Hebrew, especially Genesis 4, Genesis 4, 17, Genesis 4, 1, Genesis 16, 4, is that man lays with wife and she conceives but what you see here that the man his role is erased out now I'm not saying that Moses was a miraculous birth I'm just saying that there is something unique going on about the way they're describing his conception and you know what Moses would go on to do he would go on to become one of Israel's greatest deliverers 
He was used by God to overthrow Pharaoh, used by God to bring them out of out of Egypt, used by God to give them the law, used by God to help build the tabernacle, used by God to serve as a faithful mediator between them and God, heard by God when they rebelled and God was on the brink of wiping them out, used by God to feed them water and manna in the wilderness. But you all know how that story ends. This deliverer does not make it into the land of promise. This deliverer sinned against the Lord by striking the rock. And this deliverer was buried outside of the promised land. And those who were delivered out of Egypt here, they don't make it there. Their offspring do. And so it begs to ask, who is going to be the greater Moses? Who's going to be the one to get us home? Who's going to be the one to deliver us from the powers of hell? Who's going to be the one to lavish us with himself? Who's going to be the one to deal with not the problem of Egypt, but the problem of me? It's going to be someone greater than Moses. And his name is Jesus. Another woman is going to have a son. And another woman is going to, with her husband, take their son into Egypt, right where this, this place, right where this story unfolds. And this other son is going to live when a wicked king wants to kill all the boys. And this other son is going to have a ministry of miracles. And this other son is going to go on a mountain just like Moses and say that you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, this other son is not going to just give them bread and give them drink. He says, I am the bread of life. You who come to me will drink living waters. You will never, ever die. And this new son is not going to die on his way into the promised land. He's going to die so that we can go into the land of promise. And this son is going to be buried. And on the third day, this son will be raised. And all power has been given to that son. And he was crucified and he was struck to draw us out of darkness into his light. And we are now his. And this son is coming back. And he's bringing this new world with him. And those who believe in that son, who trust in that son, he's not going to support you in your sorrow. I'm going to obliterate it. You will weep no more. You will cry no more. You will be home. Saints, the greater son is Jesus. And he has something beautiful in store for his people. Right now, himself, in the future, himself, and all of his glory. So you remember when evil was going on in Jacob's family and all that his sons could see was what they had in front of them. Our brother is dead. Our brother is dead. Our brother is dead. <laughs> and like way over here in Egypt, <laughs> God's like, oh, he ain't dead. I'm just hiding him from y'all trifling folk. And I'm preparing him for the day of his return. Could it be that God is doing the same thing with, with Jesus right now? 
All we see here is heartache and suffering. And our temptation is to think that that's all there is. And what God is saying over here, I got somebody I'm going to send y'all. And he going to fix it. Just believe in me. Rest in me. He's coming. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. It is so rich and beautiful. Lord, uh, build up our hearts. Anchor us in our sorrow. Remind us of the good news over and over and over again. And do it in this text. Conform us to the image of Jesus, Lord. Make us a people who fear you, who love you, and who are faithful where you have us. But help us, Lord, to remember that you're going to do something greater than support us in sorrow. You're on a mission to completely obliterate it in Jesus. Help us to wait. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.